But in case you don't know, we're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in order that the events happen so that we can see and know Jesus for ourselves straight from his word. We can know what he stood for, what he taught, what he did, what he said. We want to know him firsthand. And this week's study is going to pick up right where we left off last week. It's the morning after Jesus and his disciples have been through a life threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's a storm that lasted all night and ended only when Jesus commanded the wind and the waves to be still. And then just like that, they were. Jesus had wanted to teach his disciples to have faith in his word. He had told them that they were going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but the disciples were overwhelmed by fear and doubt in the midst of the storm. After calming the storm, Jesus corrected his disciples and challenged them with the truth that there is no reason to doubt him or his word. In today's study, we're going to find out what Satan does to a man, and then we're going to see what Jesus can do for that man. And just in case you thought the disciples would get a break from all this testing, having literally just come out of a storm, you would think Jesus would say, why don't we take it easy? Let's just go get breakfast at Denny's and we'll just chill this morning for a while. But that's not really going to be the case because when the disciples asked Jesus, where do you want us to land? Jesus would tell them a very specific place that just happened to be the known home of a couple of intensely demonically possessed dudes. Not only that, but there were unkosher pigs roaming all over the place. Actual pigs, I'm not making an insulting term to people. Not only that, but Jesus would end up by saying, let's land there by the cemetery, which was just about the most unclean, un-Jew-friendly place you could have gone in the area. And the disciples had to be thinking, here we go again. Matthew's gospel tells us that these possessed men, these demoniacs, were exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. These men were so violent and dangerous that people literally avoided that entire geographic area. If you've seen a road sign that maybe has rocks, fallings, or bears, I guess this one had the silhouette of a man like this, sort of with chains, you know, and it said, you know, warning demoniacs, take alternate route, you know, and then they routed you around the area. Very, very strange situation, but I think this time the disciples held their tongues because they had just seen Jesus calm an intense life-threatening storm with just a few words. So this time I'm sure they thought, what is he doing? But I'm not going to say anything. So let's jump into our study. We're going to be at the beginning of Mark chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, second book in the New Testament, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes, the country of the Gadarenes. This is an interesting little bit of history. After God brought the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, their next destination was Canaan, the promised land. However, when they reached the border of Canaan, the Jordan River, the children of Israel, except for Joshua and Caleb, were filled with fear by the occupants of the promised land. They doubted God, and because of their lack of faith, they spent the next 40 years, 38 years to be exact, wandering through the wilderness until God gave them another shot to take the promised land again. That time, led by Joshua, they entered and took possession of the promised land. Their first step in doing that was to cross over the Jordan River. Unbelievably, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, uh, 
we'll just stay on this side, thanks. We're, we're good. We'll just stay here. And Joshua said, okay, but you're going to have to send your men to fight with us in battle in the promised land. And when the fighting's over, they can come back and you can settle on this side of the river. And they said, okay, deal. And what do you think happened to those tribes? Well, because they chose not to enter into all that God had for them, they ended up being constantly beat up and mixed with all kinds of pagan peoples who served false gods. And instead of living victoriously in the promised land, they ended up being paganized and losing their identity in God and walked away from the Lord. And the region where they settled on that side of the Jordan River was the location of what's known as Decapolis, this section of 10 cities. It became completely paganized. And so the lesson there is obvious. Always be moving forward into everything God has for you. Always be taking your next step of faith. Always be found saying, yes, Lord or else you'll end up being taken over by this world. There is no middle ground with God. There was no option for them where they could say, we're just gonna live in the river for a while, halfway between. They were either on one side or the other. And when God says, this is the side I'm calling you to, you are fooling yourself if you think you can stay on this side and have a positive impact. That's just not the way it's gonna work out you'll be the one who's influenced because you chose to say no to where God wanted to take you. You don't want to be like those tribes. The country of the Gadarenes was part of Decapolis. Deca comes from the Latin word decum, which just means 10. And Decapolis was a region of 10 Gentile cities. And these were cities that were Hellenized. They had fused with Greek culture, Roman culture, where the Jews who lived there had become completely paganized by being mixed with these foreign peoples and absorbing their beliefs. So make sure when God calls you to take a step of faith, you do it. And don't fool yourself into thinking you can stay on one side of the river and be a positive influence. That's not the way it's going to work out. That's a lie from hell, if I'm being honest. You must be a disciple. You must be a follower of Jesus. And if Jesus is going this way, you can't stay here and claim that you're following him. Because following Jesus means, this is a mind-blowing concept, following Jesus. It means if he's going there, you're going there. That's what it means to follow. Verse 2, it says, And when he had come out of the boat, he being Jesus, and then I want you to underline in your Bibles, immediately, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And it's worth noting that the presence of God seems to stir up any demonic forces that are close by. The presence of God disturbs them, it troubles them, it vexes them, it makes them restless. And so as soon as Jesus lands, this possessed man comes right up to Jesus because he's going to want to know what is going on because he's troubled by the presence of God. And this is a picture right here of what Jesus has done for each of us. You see, we were unable to help ourselves, so Jesus came to us. He came to us, and he had to go through an unbelievable storm to get to us, a storm that would cost him his life. But he got to us, and he came to us. And just as a note for you, this same account appears in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, and in Matthew's account, it mentions two men. And at first that can seem like a contradiction, but all it means is that there really were two men, but all that Mark is going to detail is just the one man who does the speaking with Jesus. But there really were two men there. 
And now we get the description of this possessed man, starting in verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones." the first thing I'd like us to notice is the list that we're given of his symptoms. In other words, these are the behaviors that resulted from demonic activity in this man's life. So write some of these down. We're going to have quite a few fill-ins here. The first is we see an obsession with death. So out of all the places he could have lived, he's chosen to live among the tombs. We see an obsession with death. We're also going to see that he has abnormal strength that no chains could hold him the third thing we're going to see is that he's unreasonable unreasonable but we don't mean just that he, he's sort of hard to debate with it says no one could tame him it literally means no one could reason with this man they couldn't have a straight conversation they couldn't help him understand things that made sense that were basic no one could reason with him he was unreasonable the next symptom we see is vocalized despair vocalized despair he was crying out it says and the next one we see it's just simply cutting cutting we see that he was cutting himself with stones and this is a very sensitive topic in today's culture so i'm going to come back to that in a moment and then in luke's gospel it tells us that these demoniacs wore no clothes so we're going to call that inappropriate nudity once again i'm struck by the fact that we are probably the only church that has the word nudity as a fill-in on their sermon outline today. Inappropriate nudity. So I want to share some more detail about each of these symptoms, but before I do that, I want to remind us of the difference between possession and oppression. Because if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is the one indwelling you. For lack of a better word, you are possessed, you are owned by God, by the Holy Spirit. You're already possessed by the Holy Spirit and it can, your spirit can only be owned by one entity at a time. And the Bible tells us that once we belong to Jesus, we can never be lost. So if you're a believer, you cannot be possessed, but you can be harassed, or as we prefer to call it, you can be oppressed. Demons can still attempt to harass you, to harm you, to wear you down, to discourage you, to draw you away from Jesus, to fill your mind with lies and accusations, things like that. If you're not a believer, then you are at risk of possession. And I know this sounds alarming, but it should sound alarming. Because if you're not a believer, no one has laid claim to ownership of your soul. And there are only three possible entities that can own your soul in your life one is jesus the other is you the other is satan and if you own it right now you might not realize it but there is a for sale sign in your soul it is on the open market and you are at risk of being possessed by satan that's as blunt and as simple as i can say it you're open to the dangers of spiritual squatters let's call them that the Bible teaches that non-believers open themselves up for possession, and I would argue that believers still open themselves up for oppression by dabbling in certain behaviors that seem to extend an invitation to demonic forces. They need some sort of invitation to come in, and certain activities extend that invitation to them. This is where the church has unfortunately historically been 
kind of weak on the reality of spiritual forces in today's world. There are things mentioned in the Bible that we still today dismiss as, as just quackery, as just hocus pocus, as nonsense, as chicanery, as just trickery. But the thing is, we so often fail to ask the right question. We look at some things and we say, you know, well, what do you think about it? Well, I think it's all nonsense. Well, that's the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, what does God think about it? What does God think about it? And in Deuteronomy 18, I I put the reference, you can look it up later on your outline. God gives a list of things that include things like fortune telling, like divination, like seances that we might dismiss. But God takes them very seriously because if these things were nonsense, I don't think God would go out of his way to tell the people of Israel, I strictly forbid you to do this. This is an abomination to me. If he's taking it seriously, then we should take it seriously as well. And you can find that list in Deuteronomy 18. God considers those things to be spiritual unfaithfulness to him and to be an invitation to demonic forces. Sleep tight, kids. Let's, uh, let's take a look at that list of symptoms again. We'll take a look at that list of symptoms again. So we saw an obsession with death. And you know, when I was a kid, you only saw this in death metal. I'm, I'm not that old. I'm, I'm 32. Shock. Yeah, I know. I have five kids. That explains the hair and the gray, all that. But when I was a kid, you only saw this in death metal. And there were always a few kids in the school who were into it. And you were like, man, those guys are like worshiping Satan. And today, already in my lifetime, it's completely mainstream, this obsession with darkness and death. It's Lady Gaga. It's Kesha. It's in pop music now. We don't don't think anything of it. The most profitable movies, I'm talking cost to profit, what a movie costs to make and how much it'll gain at the box office, is what's known as torture porn. The plot line is basically irrelevant. All the movie is involves a couple of people being captured and then having the most despicable and horrific deaths and torture being done to them in full graphic view on screen, humanly possible. And thanks to technology... We can make it look completely real. Those movies don't cost a lot to make, and they clean up at the box office. In fact, the more perverse, the more twisted, the more horrific they are, the more people want to go see them. That's an entire genre of movies. It's not an underground thing. This is playing at the theater near you. That's the culture that we live in today. People line up to watch that. Just over the past few weeks, obviously I I chose not to watch it. I've been shocked by just the sheer number of people who will hop on YouTube to watch another human being be beheaded or pass around photos of decapitated heads of people in Iraq. There's a deeply disturbing obsession with death in our entire culture right now. And here's what we don't understand. We are no different from the Romans who would pack themselves into the Colosseum to watch people die in gladiator fights or be eaten by wild beasts. We are no different. We simply don't have to leave our home to do it anymore. We're not watching these things because we're shocked and appalled. We're watching them as entertainment. That's where we are. We're we're no different. We're just as savage as the Romans were except we don't have to set up a coliseum here. We can just watch people who are doing it to themselves on the other side of the world. So do you think demonic forces might be at work where there's an obsession with death? These men chose to live in a cemetery. We see that they had abnormal strength, and I'm not going to talk about this one a lot because I think demons are more covert about this today because it would be kind of a dead giveaway. But in places in the world, third world countries, places like Haiti, where possession can still stir up great fear, 
Abnormal strength is considered kind of par for the course when it comes to possession. It's a very, very normal symptom of someone who's out and out possessed by demons. The next thing we see is that these men were unreasonable. They were wild. They were out of control, untamable, couldn't be reasoned with. And man, do I see a lot of that message being preached in entertainment today. I wish I could speak to every parent, and especially every parent who has a teenager this morning, to open their eyes to this. So how many songs by young artists or aimed at young people today are about being wild, out of control, unstoppable, living it up while we're young, going crazy like there's no tomorrow, going berserk? That was Eminem's latest big single, Just Go Berserk. That's the entire message of the song. Just start paying attention to the themes of popular culture and you will find over and over and over again in pop music this theme of just go out, go crazy, go nuts, live like there's no tomorrow, no consequences. Be unreasonable. Be untamable. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Do what makes you feel good. Do, do what seems right in the moment. Do you know that in the Satanic Bible written by Aleister Crowley, the entire theology of Satanism is summed up in one statement. It's this, do what thou wilt, this shall be the whole of the law. That is satanic theology, literally from the satanic Bible. Do what you want, do what makes you feel good, do what seems right to you in the moment. That's the only law that matters. It's the only law there is. So do you want to know how this generation says that? And I know I sound like the guy ranting about TV and entertainment and all these things, but if you can see this, you'll, you'll understand where I'm coming from. You know how this generation is given satanic theology. YOLO. You only live once. Is there any more satanic lie that you could feed to a person than you only live once? When the ultimate reality that drives every believer is understanding that you don't live once. You live forever in one of two places. And if you were Satan and there was one message you could get people to buy into, that would be it if I were him. You only live once. So live like you only live once. Live in light of no eternity. It's the complete opposite of everything the Bible teaches. An out-of-control life, living like there's no eternity. It's one of the hallmarks of demonic activity. Then we see vocalized despair, and I wish the world had eyes to see this truth because you can live by the motto YOLO, you can have fame, money, power, the adoration of millions, incredible power, and yet this man is still crying out in despair. Fame, money, power, adoration. Ask Robin Williams if that was enough. Ask Keith Ledger. Ask Philip Seymour Hoffman. Ask Michael Jackson. Ask Living Legends, ask Michael Jordan right now, one of the loneliest men in the world. Ask Kesha, ask Lady Gaga, ask Beyonce if it could save her marriage. The cries of their despair in their music, in their art, and in their personal lives bear witness to the work of Satan, who might look like he's offering you the world, but really comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The story ends the same with 100% consistency, 100% consistency, because there is no darker place you can be than to have everything you ever wanted and come to the depressing realization that it's not enough. 
what do you do when there's nothing else on the list of things you believed would make you happy? I don't know that there's a darker place than that. That's when hope leaves. And that's what Satan is all about. The same people who will tell you that they don't give a rip what anybody thinks of them are the same people who deep down are overwhelmed by despair, depression, hopelessness, and loneliness. If you have eyes to see, Facebook will reveal one huge truth. People are lonely and people are horribly insecure. Horribly insecure. They're not trying to convince you their life is amazing. They're trying to convince themselves their life is amazing because they know the truth. Satan's stories never have happy endings. The next we see cutting. Did you even realize this was in the Bible, that cutting is in the Bible? Self-harm, it's what Satan's ultimate goal is for every person, to make you destroy yourself. And I know that there are a million psychological explanations given to the habit of cutting, but here's the truth. Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you. Harming yourself intentionally for any reason is not an action that comes from the Father God who loves you. It comes from Satan who hates you and wants you to hate yourself as much as he hates you. It's demonic in nature. And as scary as that sounds, you need to know the truth of what the Bible says. The voices leading you to do that do not come from God. They come from somewhere else. The voices that tell you it'll make you feel better, it'll be a release, it'll bring things back under control. Those voices are demonic. And if you're here today and you're, you're wrestling with cutting, please let me pray for you after the service. You don't need six months of therapy. You need deliverance through the power of Jesus. That's what you need because you don't have a psychological problem. You have a demon problem. And I know that's alarming, but the only thing more alarming would be walking out here and allowing it to continue. So if we need to do business, let's do business today. Don't leave if you're dealing with that today, okay? Next, we see inappropriate nudity. And as a Bible scholar, I'm going to speculate that this is probably why nobody had tried to lay hands on these men. We'll see that even Jesus doesn't. <laughs> we'll see that even Jesus doesn't. Jesus chooses this moment to be like, no, you know, this moment, um, I'm just going to demonstrate the power of my word. It's going to be about my word. Just no touching needed. I'm just going to make a point right here. But you know, the drive to pervert sexuality always comes from Satan. There's a reason that little girls' clothing keeps getting more and more sexualized. There's a reason that shorts keep getting shorter and yet somehow cost the same. And uh, tops keep getting lower. <laughs> if you put all these things together, all these symptoms that we see in this demon-possessed guy, I was like, this really does sound like the shooting script for a Kesha music video. You've got death, you've got wild living, you've got despair, crying out, cutting, and inappropriate nudity. You know? When we encounter someone with these symptoms in our culture, we seem to have one of three responses. The first is we incarcerate them. We'll lock them away, and maybe that'll change them. It, it, it won't. It won't. It won't. They're not going to reform themselves. They need to be regenerated by Jesus. It, you know, if that doesn't work, then we might medicate them. We might medicate them if they're in a high enough class of society. These are all just psychological problems probably stemming from the environment they were raised in. It's not their fault. We, what we need to do is talk about it over and over and over again. We need to meditate on this. Or we'll just give you some pills. We don't need to determine the root cause of these issues 
We just need to sedate you a bit, enough to make this go away so that we don't have to deal with it. But if the person's extremely talented in some way, we won't incarcerate them, we won't medicate them, we'll celebrate them. Because if you're incredibly talented, then it's just part of being a free-spirited genius. We'll buy their albums, watch their games, read their books, buy their products, watch their videos. And in this case, the men were incarcerated. They couldn't put chains on them, but they just isolated them and just left them the heck alone. Do you remember last week in our study how we said the storm they went through was demonic in nature because Jesus spoke to the storm with the same verbiage he uses to address demons in other places in the scriptures? Well, I shared my belief that Satan was trying to keep Jesus away from what was on the other side of the lake. And here's what I know. If you are demonically possessed or you are demonically oppressed, Satan will do everything in his power to keep you away from people and places that could free you and deliver you from what he's doing to you. He will do everything to keep you away from strong believers, from the word of God, from a good church. If you're being oppressed this morning, you need to realize it's not that things just keep coming up on Sunday morning. It's not just that you're too tired to get into the word in the morning. There's something else going on. Satan doesn't want you to encounter the things that have the power to set you free from what he's trying to do in your life. Don't think it's just a coincidence. See through what's really, really going on. Run to Jesus. In verse 6, when he, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, this is unexpected, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. There's some strange things going on here. When we saw the demon-possessed man running to Jesus, we probably were not expecting that he was going to run, fall down, and worship Jesus. But when it says that he worshiped him, it's not talking about willful adoration. He doesn't fall at the feet of Jesus and go, Lord, I lift your name on high. It's not what, not what he's doing. It's more like obligatory homage. Even the demons have no choice but to acknowledge that the king of kings, the power over them, is in their presence. They've got no choice. It's an involuntary reaction for them. And I like that. I like that. They don't really have a choice. It says the day will come when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the way things are already in the spirit world. Jesus shows up, they take a knee. And they have to acknowledge who he is. They have no choice. That's the power structure of the spiritual world. It's one of the starting points of understanding spiritual warfare. It's not about one side may win over the other. There is no contest. It's a predetermined contest. It's rigged completely. And when Jesus walks in, they have to take a knee. But notice the title the demons use to address Jesus. Son of the Most High God. They call him that as a statement of fact. Not a statement of worship. It's just the reality of who Jesus is. Whether you're a believer, a non-believer, an angel, or a demon, Jesus is who Jesus is. He's the Son of the Most High God. And this is profound because the demons declare a truth that Jesus hadn't even explicitly shared in his ministry yet. He had hinted at it, but he had never been this blunt. But the demons know it, and they acknowledge something that Jesus hasn't even explicitly declared publicly yet in his ministry. 
And this proves that the demons are intelligent, thoughtful beings that possess an understanding of the spiritual reality of things. Something that I think is vital to realize in this interaction is that it proves that knowing and understanding that Jesus is God, the ruler of all things, does not make you saved. It doesn't make you saved. These demons have the correct theology. In fact, we'll find that they even have a correct eschatology, an understanding of the end times. They don't deny the reality of Jesus. They even confess he's the son of the most high God. In the book of James, it says, you believe that there's one God. You do well, but even the demons believe and tremble. To be saved, you must receive Jesus as your savior and then follow him as Lord. Lord means master. It means he is the master of your life. The lordship of Jesus over your life will produce works, will produce behaviors. That's what the book of James is all about. These demons believe, but Jesus is not their savior, and he's certainly, they're certainly not following him. But they believe. To be saved, you must receive Jesus as your savior and follow him as Lord. Even the demons believe. When you understand this, you'll understand, hey, you know, it matters that we get the gospel right. It matters that we don't soft sell it to people as, hey, all you have to do is just believe that Jesus is God. And if it doesn't translate into anything in your life, that's okay. As though you could believe that he's your savior without him also being your Lord. One speaker I listened to this week said, you know, there are gonna be an awful lot of people who are gonna miss heaven by 18 inches. He said, that's the distance between the head and the heart. It's going to be an awful lot of people who even know, understand, and believe that Jesus is God. And they thought that was enough, but they never chose to serve him. They never chose to follow him. There's going to be some terrible surprises coming. And I would always rather care about getting the gospel right than allow you to be misled into thinking you are good with God. I'm good with God because I know he's God. It's not enough. He requires a response. He says, even the demons know I'm God. It's not really that great of an achievement. It's your decision to follow me that I'm interested in. Heavy, heavy stuff. And speaking of the demons having a correct eschatology, a theology of the end times, we see them say, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you, and then you might want to underline, do not torment me. Do not torment me. In Matthew's gospel, it records the demon saying this to Jesus. What have we to do with you, Jesus, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time. When the demons say, I implore you by God, you're kind of thinking, well, that's kind of weird. You're name dropping God to God. Here's what they're actually saying. They're saying, we know the deal. We know that the plan is we're, we're not supposed to be destroyed until later on. You can read about it in Revelation 20. So even before John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation, the demons understood, hey man, we got a destiny, and it's bad. And when Jesus shows up, they're saying, whoa, 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 God. Uh, Article 5, section 4, line number 3, you're way off schedule. Based on the plan that you've come up with, please don't destroy us just yet. They're invoking the plan that Jesus would lay out in Scripture. I love that the Bible tells us that because it tells us the demons know they have a destiny, more specifically a destiny of, you want to write this down, torment and destruction. 
torment and destruction. They understand that the day is coming when they will no longer have any power, but will be bound and cast into the lake of fire where they will suffer eternal torment. We live in an age where many so-called Christians deny the existence of hell. There's no literal place of suffering. I would humbly suggest that you ask the demons if they believe in a literal place of torment because they were pretty terrified that Jesus was going to send them there. Their theology was right on. You know what else I love? What's implied here is that to send them there, all Jesus would have to do is say, you have to go there. And they would have to go there. That's the extent to the power Jesus has. This age where Satan's the ruler of the earth and his demons roam looking to cause pain and destruction, this age is going to come to an end one day. Even the demons know that and they testify to it. And I'm excited about that. Verse 9, then he, Jesus, asked him, the demoniac, what is your name? And he answered saying, probably one of the scariest lines in scripture, my name is Legion for we are many. The demons making a Roman military reference. A Roman legion was a battalion of around 6,000 soldiers. Write that down. 6,000 soldiers. By implication, this demon is telling us there were around 6,000 demons in this man. And if you think that's unbelievable, you'll soon see physical evidence that there were at least 2,000 in this man. In verse 10, it says, Also he, the demoniac, begged him, Jesus, earnestly, that he would not send them out of the country. In Luke's gospel, it tells us more accurately what they're saying. It says, And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. The word abyss is the word abusos in the original Greek, and it just means bottomless pit. From other places in Scripture, I don't have the time to do a whole side study, but from other places in Scripture, we can tell that it's a deep dark place in the dimension of death that the Bible calls Hades or Sheol, reserved especially for the torment of satanic demonic beings. That's where their eternal destiny is waiting for them. And they said to Jesus, don't send us there yet. Um, and they want to give Jesus another option. So verse 11, it says, now a large herd of swine, pigs, was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. They don't want to be sent into the abyss, so they're scrambling to give Jesus another option. They know that Jesus is not going to be okay with it if they're like, can we go into Fred? No, you can't go into Fred. So they say, well, how, how about the pigs? So we notice that they're constantly seeking embodiment. Demons want to be in a host. If you want to do a fun study, I'll just send you guys off on a bunny trail this week. Notice that demons are different from fallen angels. Fallen angels are simply angels that are allied to Satan, but they're still angels. We know from Scripture that angels, and by implication fallen angels, can manifest physically in our space-time dimension. Demons can't do that. They're only spirits, and they can only become physical by possessing something. So for a fun side study this week, try to figure out where demons came from, okay? That's a fun, fun study. So they constantly want to be embodied in a host. But here's what's interesting. Apparently, they need special permission from Jesus to go into animals. This is the only time in Scripture this will happen. So no, your cat is not possessed. Okay? They need a special exception for this. They don't seem to need permission to enter a person, but they need special permission to go into an animal. So they offer Jesus the alternative. Hey, we know that you're going to cast us out of these men, but can we at least go into those pigs instead? Here's where it gets really weird. 
Verse 13, and at once Jesus gave them permission. Yeah, okay, pig out. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. That's how we know there were at least 2,000 demons involved here. What do they do? And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. It's a terrible case of swine flu. What a strange, strange development. If you didn't get that, think about it. I really hope you got that. What a strange development. So let's unpack this a little bit. So the first thing we notice is that when the demons enter the pigs, they immediately go to work destroying them because that's what demonic forces do. They create havoc and destruction. As the Bible says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But the question most of us are probably asking is, why did Jesus grant their request? Why, Why would he do that? And I think the answer is found in what the resulting activity revealed. Firstly, and I want you to write this down, it proved that these were not mental health issues that were plaguing these men. It proved these were not mental health issues because mental health issues don't jump from one person to another. That's never happened in medical history, ever. But it proved that there was something in the spiritual that was being manifest in the physical and nobody could deny the reality when this man is suddenly freed and transformed from demonic possession, these pigs become possessed and immediately run off a cliff against all logic. There was no disputing this is something spiritual in nature as though Jesus understood that in the future people would want to say, you know, demonic possession is really just a mental health problem. And we need to demythologize this. Jesus said, well, I'm going to do this in a way where you're not really going to be able to demythologize it. It's going to be 2,000 pigs floating in the Sea of Galilee that you're going to have to deal with in your explanation here. It proved that what was happening in the spiritual world was irrefutably real in the natural That would have been enough of a reason to do this. And if you're worried about the financial burden to the pig farmer, just please remember this is Jesus we're talking about. It's Jesus, okay? He can snap his fingers and make up for it through some miracle any way he wants. You don't need to worry about the pig farmer. But speaking of the farmer, we're going to find out that secondly, the demons taking over the pigs will reveal that the people of the town care far more about money than they do about people. And as a result of the pigs being killed, Jesus is going to be asked to leave the area, which would seem to be a win for the powers of darkness. And this may well have been the scheme of the demons in asking to enter the pigs. They might have asked Jesus so that they could kill the pigs and stir up dissent against Jesus that would force him to leave that area where they seem to be doing some pretty effective demonic ministry. But we'll find out this doesn't end up being a win for them. In verse 14, it says, so those who fed the swine fled. That's probably what I'd do as well. And they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they rejoiced. Oh, no. And they were afraid. Isn't this a riot? They were fine with him being demon-possessed, untamable, crying out and cutting himself, running around naked and wild. But now he's clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus and in his right mind. And they say, whoa, something weird is going on here. This is freaky. Something is off. Society was so perverted and so twisted that they thought someone sitting clothed and in their right mind was freaky. 
crazy. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you just need to get used to this. If you are wild, crazy, out of control, living by YOLO as your life motto, dressing inappropriately, talking filthy, obsessed with death, hey, that's, that's normal. That's normal. But if your idea of a good time is hanging out with family and friends, talking about what Jesus has done in your life, hey man, you need to buy a ticket back from crazy town and come back to reality because you are into some weird stuff. You're not normal. Who are the swine keepers? Who are the pig farmers of today? I would suggest these are people who elevate making money over the well-being of people. And you want to know where to start? You start in mass media. Start by paying attention to what's going on on your TV, in movie theaters, on the radio, and on the internet. Who cares what's happening to our society? Who cares what's happening to our families, to our marriages, to our mental health? We're making money here. We're making money here. It's destroying you. Oh, just take this pill. Then you can keep doing it. We're making money here. YOLO. Verse 15, then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Just as there are symptoms and behaviors that result from demonic activity, there are behaviors that result from salvation. Write these down. The first thing we see is a desire for Jesus' word. When it says he was sitting, what it means is he was sitting with Jesus. And we've talked before how when a teacher would teach, he would sit down and his audience would stand. But there's one more group you need to know about that Jesus now has. He now has disciples. And when you were a disciple of the teacher, you were permitted to sit in front with the teacher. So the fact that this man is sitting tells us that he was now a disciple of Jesus and Jesus considered him a disciple. Secondly, we see a renewed sense of modesty. You notice that Jesus doesn't tell this guy, hey, you know, put on some pants. This guy just goes, man, I'm free. I love Jesus. And is there a draft in here? Just something that happens. He suddenly has this new way of seeing himself. And that's the third thing we see is we see a renewed mind. He was in his right mind and he's starting to see everything differently about the world. Everything is suddenly becoming clear. And then lastly, we see a desire to be with Jesus. And we're going to see this in verse 18, a desire to be with Jesus. I just want to point out when somebody says they're saved and they're a follower of Jesus and they have no desire for his word, they have no desire to be with him. He hasn't affected their thinking. You really need to ask if anything's actually happened there. Or if like the demons, they simply believe that he is God and he is the son of God. Verse 16, it says, And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to worship Jesus and give glory to God for the miraculously changed lives, declaring how priceless is the healing of these men. No, it's not what they said. Verse 17, then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Luke's gospel says, for they were seized with great fear. So word gets around town what's happened. And I'm confident that if Peter had existed at the time, they would have crucified Jesus right there and then. But I want to make a quick point here while I'm on it. It's a dangerous point to make in Vancouver. 
But please realize it's very clear from the story that Jesus does not consider the lives of animals and human beings to be of equal importance. Can we agree on that here? Okay, very clear. And we live in a society where we are constantly seeking to elevate the status of animals to equal with humans. This is how disturbing our world is. Did you know that in the world of movie making, it's known, hey, listen, if you really want to pack an emotional punch with a death in a movie, don't use a person. We've seen it too many times. Use a dog. Use an animal. Oh my gosh, why? Why, why, why? You know, you could shoot 200 people and we just keep munching the popcorn, you know. A horse? A horse? I, just, I can't watch this anymore. Where is God, you know? Our society is so twisted that we get more worked up about Shamu being in an environment that's too small than we do about millions of unborn children being murdered in their mother's wombs. But the most important thing is the comfort of an animal. And I'm not saying that's not important. I'm just saying a little perspective. There's only one being on the planet of which God said, let us make them in our image. It's you and I, people made in the image of God with a spirit, a soul to fellowship with him. We are unique from every other creature in the universe because we are made in the image of God. So support anything you want, but for the love of God, don't support an animal charity or an animal rights group before you support a human rights group or a human charity. Please, because God did not die for those pigs or even Shamu. I know that's hard to hear. I know that's hard to hear. He died for people. He died for people. The value he places on people is that of his own life. He created those pigs not to save them, but ultimately because bacon is delicious. Okay, it's not a theological point, I'm just making a practical point. But as people hear about what's happened, their response isn't, that's wonderful. These men have been made whole. They've been healed. It's a miracle. Let's celebrate. That's not their response. Their response is, we're pig farmers, Jesus. There's money at stake here. And quite frankly, we'd rather have our money than you. We'd rather have things stay the way they are with a couple of wrecked people around over there than have you mess up the whole system. So to their request, Jesus says, okay. Verse 18, and when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things, and then I want you to underline, the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And all marveled. Notice this. It tells us that Jesus told the man to tell everyone what great things the Lord has done for you. And the man responds by telling everyone, it says, all that Jesus had done for him. So what's the implication? The implication is that Jesus is Lord. And this man recognized that. How interesting and disturbing that when the demons say, hey, can we go into those pigs? Jesus says, okay. When the townsfolk say, hey, can you leave? Jesus goes, okay. And then when the new member of his family, his disciple, 
the healed man says, I want to go with you, Jesus. Jesus says, no. No. No, you can't. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he do that? You know, one of the most important lessons you can ever learn in the Christian life is that a no from God is as much a blessing as a yes. Why don't you write that down? A no from God is as much a blessing as a yes. I've learned that a closed door is as much a blessing as an open door because God leads and guides through both. When you don't get the answer you're praying for, it means you don't know what you should have been praying for. That just, that's all it means. You can trust God. When God says no, there's a reason. He's doing something. He's doing something profound. And I want to be careful because I never want to say he's doing something better because we always think in earthly terms when we say that. But the writings of the apostles tell us to trust the character of God, to have faith that he's doing something. He's always doing something good. And the reason those words pack so much weight, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, was written by a man who spent most of his ministry in prison, being tortured, and was ultimately killed for believing in Jesus. And that man wrote, all things work together for good. The greatest good that we could ever receive is to arrive in the presence of Jesus. And I guarantee you that the Apostle Paul would stand by what he wrote in Romans 8.28. So God is doing something when we get a no. Sometimes it's better in this life. Sometimes it's better for eternity. But here's what I know. When we arrive in eternity, we will be so glad that he said no because it will be for our good in the long run. In this case, Jesus knew that the most powerful ministry this man could ever do would be to the people who already knew him. The people who knew who he had been would be shocked by who he now was. Maybe when you came to Jesus, you couldn't help thinking, man, I wish that I could move somewhere different and just have a fresh start. Then everybody would only know me as the person I am now. And I wouldn't have to keep living my past over and over and over. Listen, your most powerful witness, the greatest glory for God, is going to be found in the people who knew who you were, who knew how you used to be, and now meet someone who's different in their right mind, living at the feet of Jesus. That's a testimony that they can't refute because it's real. You are the evidence. You are exhibit A for Jesus. And over time, people are going to be won over by the change that's happened in your life. You know, often we think that Jesus has called us to be defense attorneys or judges, but he hasn't. We think he's called us all to defend the veracity of the Bible or expose the fallacy of evolution, but, but he hasn't. And that's good news because many of us think, man, I, I can't do that. Write this down. Jesus has called us to be witnesses, to be witnesses. And what does a witness do in a court case? They simply tell their story. They tell the court, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I experienced. And God calls some people to the special ministry of being defense attorneys, but not most of us. We're called to simply be witnesses. And can I tell you, you are qualified to be a witness because it happened to you. You're the best witness there is for what has happened to you. Share what Jesus has done for you and in you with the people you're connected with. Be a witness. That's all he's asking you to do. Like the blind man said, here's what I know. Here's what I know. I was blind, but now I see. The man in this story had an equally simple testimony. His testimony would have been, Jesus scared the hell out of me. 
Very, very simple. Very, very simple. I like this. If you ask somebody who wasn't here today, hey, who's the first missionary commissioned in the Bible? Who's the first missionary commissioned in the Bible? I know what they're going to say. They're going to say, oh, it was, it was the apostles. It was Peter. It was John. Somebody like that. Nobody will say, oh, the demoniac of the Gadarenes. But that's the truth. This man is the first missionary commissioned and sent by Jesus. He says, go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. So get this, right before he goes out to be a missionary, he wasn't at a seminary. He was at a cemetery. And sometimes they're the same thing. What could he have put on his resume? He could have put this on his resume. Very familiar with the supernatural for various reasons which are not important. He had an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. And according to Jesus, that was enough to be a witness for Jesus. That was enough. You're qualified. You're qualified to be a witness to what Jesus has done in your life. And what a demonstration this is of the heart of God for people. Because to whom does Jesus send the first missionary he commissions? The pig farmers. The people who just asked him to leave. That's the heart of Jesus. He says, go and tell them. Just go live among them. Let them see you. Let them experience what I've done in your life. So when Jesus left this region at this time, it was by the request of the people there. They asked him to leave, and he did. All he left behind were a couple of witnesses that had been miraculously saved by him. The next time Jesus visits this region, we get to see the impact of the witness of the formerly possessed men. You can flip ahead in your Bibles to Mark 7, 31, or look at your outline, and let's read it real quick. It says, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. What happens when he arrives in Decapolis? Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude. So the next time Jesus shows up there, they're not shooing him away. They're bringing him their impossible situations because they believe he has the power to do the impossible because they've realized that in the lives of these men, he's done the impossible. Next time Jesus goes there, there's a multitude of people waiting to see him. That's the impact of a couple of men just telling their story, just telling what Jesus did for them. Don't underestimate what Jesus can do through you just telling your story. You don't have to be a theologian. You just need to tell your story. So first off, in conclusion, I want to say if you're waiting for Jesus to come to you, you don't have to. He already has. He's been through the storm for you. He's laid down his life for you, and he's here through the presence of the Holy Spirit to meet with you here today. If you need saving, if you need deliverance, if you need healing, if you need restoration, He's here. He's here. And the only reason he went through that storm of the crucifixion and his death was for one reason, because he wants you. When the demon said inside the man, Jesus, what do you want? What Jesus did next revealed his answer. His answer was, I want the man. I want the man. I want the man who's a mess. I want the man who's out of control. I want the man who's broken. I want the man who's cutting himself. I want the man who's unreasonable. I want the person with a past that they don't think they could ever get past. I want the people who are messed up. I want the people who are addicted. I want the people who think they're too good. I want the people who think they're not good enough. I want the man. 
That's what I want. That's what Jesus was saying. And you need to know that he wants you. If you've already given your life to Jesus, take communion as we worship in a few minutes. It's available in the back. And thank Jesus that he wanted you. He wanted you then. He wants you now. And he wants you forever. So we paid the price to purchase you, his body and his blood. Secondly, he's called you and I to be his witnesses. So in this coming time, let's just pray for the boldness to do that. Who, who do you need to share your story with this week? Who needs to hear what God has done for you? Who do you need to be praying for? Who are those three names? Maybe you need to put pen to paper this week and just write down your story of what Jesus has done for you. If you don't think you have a story, you have a story. Maybe you need to realize what it is. Let's pray together. Will you pray with me? First off, we always want to give the opportunity, especially today, for anyone who might be here and say, you know, Jeff, I can't shake the fact that even the demons believe, but they don't follow Jesus. He's not their Lord. If you're here today, and you might even say, man, I believe in God, but I'm not following him. I've never followed him. I've never handed over the keys to my life. I've never said, God, you are my Lord. You're my master. You're in charge. But today you want that to change. Today you want that to change. You want to cross that River Jordan into all that God has for you. You want to go all in for the first time, become a follower of Jesus. Let me know if that's you. Thank you. And then for the rest of us, he's just calling you to tell your story. He's just calling you to tell your story. And if your story today involves being oppressed, if you need deliverance, if you need healing, you need forgiveness, you need restoration, Jesus wants to write that into your story today. Ask him for it. And he'll do it for you. I promise he will. He's the God of the impossible. Let's pray for boldness to be his witnesses. Every single one of us here is a miracle of the grace of God. We're a miracle of the grace of God. All our stories are different, none more important than another, and all witness to the grace and the goodness of God. So wherever you are, let's spend some time in this coming time taking communion and thanking God for coming to us when we were on the other side of the lake, unable to help ourselves. He came to us and he set us free. He moved us from death into life. Father, we love you so much and we thank you so much for your goodness and the goodness of your plan. We thank you so much for coming to us. Now help us to have the same heart that the demoniac who was freed had. The heart that says, I want people to know what Jesus has done for me. Give us boldness by the power of the Holy Spirit to be your witnesses, God. Not theological experts, but just witnesses to the undeniable truth that you have done great things in us, God. 